Good to see you guys. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Hebrews. And as you do, I did want to make an announcement of congratulations to Alex and EJ. So little baby Ezra was born a few days back, and he was eight pounds, three ounces, and uh, mama and baby are doing well, so just keep them in prayer. He was, uh, you all know that Alex was recently ordained as a pastor, but we call him Rabbi Alex. So baby Ezra was born with a beard, uh, a yarmulke when he came out of the womb. Uh, Alex told me on the phone he was pre-circumcised, which is kind of miraculous, and that he, on day two, was citing sections of the Torah from memory. (laughs) So there you go. Anyway, so congratulations, Alex and EJ. If you are watching, God bless you guys. We're excited for you. And we pray that uh, it'll be a wonderful year for you all as a family. Uh, I did want to mention as well, some of you were watching Monday Night Football and saw what happened with DeMar Hamlin. Uh, he is a cornerback uh, for the Buffalo Bills, 24 years old. Kind of a what we would call a, a hit that looked pretty normal, but his heart stopped and he fell back on the field and it's been all over the place. Uh, I bring it up not to make new commentary about what happened, but just to say that the reaction in the country has been pretty encouraging. Uh, In fact, I saw one of the ESPN commentators live on the air actually bow his head and pray to the Lord. And I will tell you that ESPN has not been particularly friendly to outspoken Christian commentators over the years or over the last five or 10 years. But there's some good news that Americans still respond in this way. Groups of people were uh, bowing down in prayer on the field, which is exciting to see, without shame. And, uh, you know, we could comment on all the hypocrisy. You know, one person seems to get condemned for praying, and then it's okay to pray. But I will say this, just to stay on the positive, that it is good news that people did turn to the Lord and uh, football players got down on their knees and sought the Lord because they had no place else to go. And it is true that you don't find many atheists in foxholes when the bullets are flying and life is on the line. We know where to turn. And I pray that that will spark something in America. We were back in the prayer room uh, before we came out and we were praying specifically for prodigals because this country is filled with a lot of prodigal Uh, sons and daughters who have been exposed to the gospel, made a profession of faith in Christ, and have wandered away. And if they came back tonight, I have a feeling that the churches in our city would be relatively full. So let's be praying that uh, prodigals will come home and uh, that the Lord would use, you know, he exploits these kinds of things for his good purposes. We're also praying for Congress uh, back in the prayer room. If they would get down on their knees and pray, they might be able to agree on a few things as well. Amen? And, uh, you know, in in the history of our country at the Continental Congress, they spent hours in prayer at the founding of our nation. They prayed over the founding documents. They spent time in prayer unashamedly seeking the Lord because they lacked the wisdom. And if we would just humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, and I pray someone in government is listening right now, 
We never know what God might do if we just prayed and didn't lean on our own understanding. But tonight, that's enough of my soapbox because we're in the book of Hebrews. Would you stand for the reading of the word of, of, the word of God if you can with us? I want to welcome everybody who's watching via live stream. This is Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. It reads this way, God, I'm reading from the New American Standard. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, the Son, is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he, that is Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Father, majesty is a beautiful word to represent these first three verses in this book. Indeed, your whole word is majestic because it comes from you. Tonight, may we bask in the majesty of this wonderful book of Hebrews. Give us wisdom, understanding, and a heart to respond in a way that would please our King, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, all God's people said. Amen. You can have a seat. So the incredible book of Hebrews, you'll notice, opens with God. Um, unlike many of the what's called epistles or the letters of the New Testament, which often included the identification of the author, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, the recipients of the letter, uh, none of that is here. Uh, it, gets, it goes right to the point, right to the... Uh, I think there's a sense of urgency, actually, in these first three verses, not like there isn't in other letters that have a standard opening, but I will say there's a very pastoral heart Behind this letter, there is a sense of urgency, and I'll explain why. I will tell you that there's a lot that's been written about the book of Hebrews and the potential author of the book, but that is not resolved, and we just don't know because we don't have the name. So anything that we would say about who the author may be is conjecture. You might have a majority of scholars leaning towards Paul. Others might say it was Apollos or somebody else, but we just don't know, so I'm just gonna leave that. I will tell you that as we do a little bit of an introduction, the date of the book lands somewhere in the mid-60s AD, before the temple fell in Jerusalem in 70 AD. So that there is agreement on that, and there's agreement among scholars as to the recipients of the letter. That would be a group of early Jewish Christians. That's why the book is called Hebrews. It's not because Hebrews coffee, although I know you might enjoy coffee, but it is actually about the recipients of the letter. The target audience, if you will, in the first century was a group of beleaguered, beat up first century Christian Jews, most likely who received the letter living in Rome. The consensus of scholarship would say 
that they had never met Jesus personally, but they had become believers shortly after the events of the Passion or somewhere within, say, the, you know, a decade or two after the events of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension. They had believed on him. They had trusted in him. They had left Judaism or had seen Christ as the fulfillment of the Torah, but now they were facing persecution. One of the Roman emperors in AD 49 kicked a bunch of Christians out of different areas, or Jews out of different areas, I should say. I think if memory serves, it was Claudius. And uh, there, was, there was a great persecution that happened. And there was also something else coming at these early Jewish believers, and that is they were getting persecution probably from Rome to some degree and from the Jewish leadership who had not trusted in Christ. Because now they were seen as outcasts in the temple and the synagogue and probably in familial and even business relationships. So it was very difficult to navigate a change of life from being a committed Jew with all you know, the ceremonies and diet and days of worship and all that that went with that and now to say I have trusted Christ as the fulfillment of all of that. And there were people who did not look kindly on that. And a lot of them were in uh, very powerful positions like, you know, head rabbis and chief priests and the like. And so it would be difficult as a Jewish person to deal with this. In fact, if you look ahead in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, just for a second, you'll get a snapshot of what some of them were going through. Hebrews 10, 32 says, but remember... 1032, the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, Hebrews 1033, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Now you get a little bit of a taste of what they were going through. And because of the pressure that these early Christians were facing, and, and the parallel example in a contemporary sense might be you're a Christian in China, you're a Christian in Iran, something like that. You open your heart to Christ and now all of a sudden not only does the society reject you largely, but your family may as well. Your religious heritage, etc. You kind of get the idea of how difficult this would be. In fact, uh, there's evidence in the same chapter, in chapter 10, if you go back to verse 23, the writer, uh, in a pastoral way, encouraging, exhorting, says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And they indeed were wavering, for he who promised is faithful, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, 1025, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but, in, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Some had begun to forsake fellowship because of the threat to an open public testimony to Christ. And so it became harder and harder for this group of early Christian Jews to openly profess Christ without the threat of something happening. If you flip over to chapter 12, it would appear that nobody had died yet, but there was pressure. If you look at 
12, 3, it says, Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Christ went through this. He promised that his followers would as well. So that you not, will not grow weary and lose heart. And they were on the verge of doing both. Notice, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. That may well uh, give us the idea that while persecution was ramping up, uh, people had not yet been killed for their faith, but there was at least a very real threat. Some of you have heard, if you go back to chapter one, that at this time there were some fires in Rome and Nero, uh, some historians believe that Nero was the cause of the fires. We don't know for sure, but may well be, and that he blamed the Christians for it. And that's around the time frame of the writing of the book of Hebrews. Therefore, there could be kind of a, a rippling effect from Nero's you know, uh, blame of the Christians and his persecution of the church and what was happening to these early believers. So you can see that they were facing some very real dilemmas. Uh, we, we can decry a lot happening in our country right now, but I mentioned what happened you know, in the football game and how people began to pray and people were openly professing Christ. And so while our country has moved away and the percentages are dropping in terms of committed you know, professing believers, we have not yet tipped the other way, at least I hope, and so there's hope in America, but would to God that we would turn back to the Lord while there's yet time, amen? amen? While it doesn't get too bad. And so in the opening chapters, as we kind of introduce the book and we think about the struggles of these early believers and maybe even you know, of modern believers, maybe struggles that you yourself are going through, chapters one through seven the writer is arguing the big theme for the superiority of Christ to anything or anyone else. In fact, we have called the overall theme of this book the superiority, our superior and sympathetic high priest. And you're going to see two big things that I want you to be thinking about. Jesus is superior to everything else, whether it's Moses, Joshua, angels, other high priests, the law, you name it. Jesus is superior, and yet he is sympathetic. He, in chapter two and four, the writer will celebrate our empathetic and sympathetic high priest. Though he is creator and sustainer of the universe, he has sympathy for us. Why? Well, number one, because God is compassionate, but number two, because he became one of us. And he was in all points tested or tempted as us, yet without sin. So we can come to the throne of grace, Hebrews 4, and we can come boldly in time of need and know that he will pour out what I will call dispensing grace. He will stabilize us in the storms of life. And so the Hebrew Christians are going to uh, hear this letter. And when they assembled, probably not much more than uh, what is in this room, maybe less. Some scholars say when the letter was originally read, it might have been read to 20 to 25 uh, Jewish Christians in Rome. So don't, don't think that the numbers were some mega church in Rome where you know they had huge numbers. I don't think that was the case at all. So our superior and sympathetic 
high priest. Uh, let me just read something from our notes, from my notes. It says, um, it's not that these things that Christ is superior to were wrong in their time and place, like Moses or Joshua or Aaron, but they have now been surpassed or superseded by Christ, whether prophets, angels, great leaders, etc. Each was a voice from Israel's past that needed to be heard, but was woefully inadequate to be followed alone. The ultimate revelation of God, to whom all these other voices and quotes were pointing, is Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate revelation of God, and he eclipses them all. The Hebrew Christians must not slip back to lesser things. Their temptation well, with all this pressure, let's just go back to the temple. Let's go back to what we know. Let's go back to the sacrificial system, but the sacrificial system has been fulfilled. And the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. So the writer says in, in chapter 10, which we will get to in 2024 most likely, he says, if you go back to that, essentially, there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sin. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats has been fulfilled in the person of Christ. And if you go back to the shadow, you will find no efficacy in that substitute because Christ has fulfilled that. Everybody understand? If we try to go back to works righteousness or anything else, it's not going to work. And we will find ourselves without the forgiveness that we so desperately need. We need Christ. He is the gospel. So don't go back to lesser things. Let me just say a word of encouragement and exhortation to all of us, to myself. A temptation to go back to lesser things always exists. Wouldn't it be easier if I just did this? Wouldn't it be easier if I just acquiesced? If I just maybe went back to my old life, if I just went back to the old ways, if I just went back to this old system. But those things can never produce. They, can, they cannot deliver, nor they, can they produce the life and the power that we all desire. Amen? Amen? And yet, the temptation is very much there. People pressure is a very real thing. Peer pressure. What people think of me, say about me, you know, how they treat me. And so the, these early believers, I think we can all resonate with them and maybe we can see our situation in contrast to them as, you know, probably for most of us a lot better. I mean, we're not, we're not dealing with the same hard circumstances most of us as they were. So the, the word that opens the letter to the Hebrews, I should say, the one that opens the letter, his name is God. And almost like Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. Well, the writer of Hebrews write to it. He says, God, after he spoke, our God has spoken. Amen? He has spoken, God has spoken to us. Now, let me just say, in a general sense, when you think about God speaking, and this is what a lot of people wonder about, does, if there is a God, somebody might say, does he speak? Does he speak today? Or how has he spoken? The Hebrew Christians might be saying, well, where is he? Where is he in the trial, in the looming persecution, in, in the fact that we're being mistreated is he speaking today? 
Well, God, after he spoke, the opening tells us that God is a God who speaks. He has spoken through creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. That's Psalm 19. And Paul picked that up in Romans 1 and said that God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen by what has been made so that God is, that I should say that man, God has made it clear that man is without excuse. Just by the physical creation, God's attributes are clearly seen Linking it with Psalm 19, they speak to man, listen, day after day, night after night. Mankind is bombarded with the reality of the existence of God just by the divine design of the cosmos. Okay? God has spoken in that sense. He's spoken through the world that he made, and we might say worlds because we know how incredibly vast the universe is. In fact, all scientists, I think, without uh, exception, uh, say it's expanding. The universe is an expanding organism, if you will. We haven't begun to even tap what's out there. So he's spoken through the world and through his word. And that's where the, the writer is going in the early verses in Hebrews we have a whole Bible here. And God spoke. He spoke in days, he spoke long ago to a couple of different groups here in verse one. The fathers, and then it says in the prophets. And when you think of the fathers, you can think of the fathers of the uh, nation of Israel. You can think of Abraham. God appeared to Abraham. What did he tell him? Tell him, told him, leave your country, go. I'm going to show you a land. I'm going to take you to a land, a land, the land of promise. He promised him a son from his own body. God spoke to Abraham. God spoke to Isaac. God spoke to Jacob. Those are considered the fathers, if you will. Romans 9.5 confirms that. These are the Jewish fathers, the fathers of the Jewish nation. He also spoke through the prophets. Just backing up for a second and thinking about the ways that God has spoken. We've talked about the world. The world speaks day and night, morning and evening, if you will. God has not been quiet. But he also has spoken to the fathers and the prophets and through the prophets. Think about Abraham and Sarah. Think about Jacob wrestling with God. Think about the burning bush, Mount Sinai, Manoah and his wife. Uh, these all happen in human history. God spoke, and he spoke, and he spoke again. He spoke to Samuel. He spoke to David. He spoke in the power of Sinai, and the powerful soldier that appeared in Joshua 5 to Joshua, to Elijah in a still small voice in 1 Kings 19. I know I'm going fast, but you can go back and listen to this if you want to write this down. Visions came to Ezekiel and Daniel. Sometimes these prophets like Isaiah were called to perform strange and even bizarre symbolic uh, acts. Hosea was even called to marry a woman who would be unfaithful to him to speak of God's love for his people. R. Kent Hughes says these words, 
Through God's cosmic and prophetic eloquence, men and women rose to live life on the highest plane. Abraham achieved the faith to offer his own son. Moses withstood the Pharaoh with mighty miracles. David slew Goliath. Daniel achieved and maintained massive integrity in Babylon. But in all of this, as grand as it was, it was nevertheless fragmentary and still lacking, close quote. If I were to go through all the people that we could talk about in the Old Testament, you know we would be here for many hours, wouldn't we? Talking about the lives that intersected with the God of the Bible and how they were transformed and how God's power was on display and how he changed trajectories of people's lives and families and destinies. And this room is filled with people who have had the same experience through the power of the gospel, amen? Some of you are first-generation Christians. Some of you have had your, your whole life transformed, your marriage transformed, your family transformed, the trajectory of what you would do with your life because of this God. And that's who he is, and that's the way it should be. That's what he does. F.F. Bruce puts it this way. Priest and prophet, sage and singer, were in their several ways his, his spokesman, yet all the successive acts in various varying modes of revelation in the ages before Christ, uh, before Christ came did not add up to the fullness of what God wanted to say. 